let's get into the neuroscience of self-confidence, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 124, where I aim to share some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. How are you? Let me add to your day some scientific evidence that I hope will stimulate your mind to give us some foundation for self-improvement. But before I jump into today's topic, I want to give a special thank you to Andrew for buying me coffee to say thank you for the podcast. Your support means a lot to me. And I know that you don't have to make this gesture. And when any of you buy me coffee or say you enjoyed the episode or let me know how the show positively impacted you, it makes me so incredibly happy. So thank you so much for that. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to share some science on the neuroscience of self-confidence. What part of our brain regulates our self-confidence? How does the brain respond differently in people with high versus low self-confidence? What difference does it make to our life if we lack or have self-confidence? Can we have too much confidence? Can we use neuroscience to our advantage to enhance our self-confidence or self-esteem? keep listening on to find out. But before I jump into today's topic, let's start off with our foregone fact, where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Johannes Kilstra in 1961 believed it was possible to have mammals breathe underwater. That if we could breathe underwater, how so much of our earth, the uncharted oceans, could now be habituated by humans, so humans could live under the sea. Kilstra even hypothesized we could live on other planets that had water then. And back in the 1960s, when landing on the moon happened, thoughts of humans living elsewhere, living underwater or on other planets, was of keen interest. So Kilstra published in the Chest Journal in 1965 some of their work. To start off this breathing underwater experiment, Kilstra used mice. So instead of altering the mice or giving something to the mice, Kilstra changed the chemistry of the water. Kilstra prepared an isotonic solution that is like blood plasma and salt composition and charged this solution with oxygen under greater than normal pressure. The mice were introduced into the chamber through a lock resembling the escape hatch of a submarine. A grid under the water level prevented the animals from surfacing, so the mice had to remain underwater. Soon the mice began breathing the oxygenated liquid. The mice did not drown. 
but continued breathing the balanced and buffered salt solution for up to 18 hours. That, to me, is astonishing that the mice breathed underwater for 18 hours. However, Kilstra mentioned that the mice seemed to obtain plenty of oxygen, but what the difficulty was was their ability to expel the carbon dioxide. When we breathe, we not only need to take in oxygen, but also exhale the carbon dioxide. Otherwise, carbon dioxide and its byproducts will build up in our blood and tissues. And it appears that Kilstra was never able to overcome that last hurdle of being able to expel carbon dioxide underwater over a long period of time. So even though this study seems unethical for today, it was a pretty incredible study back in the 1960s to illustrate or to investigate the possibility of mammals living underwater. Now, let's get into today's topic, the neuroscience of self-confidence. Confidence is our ability to believe that we can achieve something. The probability that we believe we are capable to do something with success. This is highly related to self-esteem, which is our positive thoughts of our worth, positive thoughts on our abilities, and positively perceiving our self. Now, why we study self-confidence and self-esteem is because it can greatly influence our mental health, our happiness, our success, and the success of others around us. Neuroimaging studies have identified certain brain regions as being important in self-esteem and self-evaluation, such as the medial prefrontal cortex, cortex, the amygdala, and the precuneus. This gives us a target to enhance self-confidence if we battle with low self-esteem, because we now understand where self-esteem is regulated in the brain, such as the technique of affect labeling, making a decision, planning, and reaching for achievable goals. These are tactics or strategies that are based on those neuroscience findings. But as with everything, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing, such as overconfidence or arrogance. Observational studies indicate that overconfidence can be harmful. Imagine a surgeon or a pilot being overconfident in their ability to perform their task. How detrimental that could be. So how can we prevent or reduce overconfidence? Well, scientists have noted that individuals that scored very confident but were not competent tended to score high for arrogance and dogmatism, meaning they were steadfast in their principles and beliefs were unwilling to take in new information or opinions from others. Thus, being open-minded, considering other perspectives, and open to suggestions can be helpful to reduce overconfidence. Everything in balance. Now, let's get into those scientific details. Self-confidence or trait self-esteem can include the tendency for us to look at ourselves and to evaluate ourselves positively rather than negatively. But why do we want to study self-confidence or self-esteem? Well, many scientists have identified that self-confidence is a powerful predictor of mental health, well-being, and happiness. It seems that lacking general confidence can be a large contributor to poor mental health, loneliness, low academic achievement, and unhappiness. Now let me teach you a word that is probably new to you, and it in fact is one of the longest words in the Oxford English Dictionary. This word is phloxenosanilopilification. It is defined as the action or habit of estimating something 
or someone as worthless. The definition of low self-esteem involves making a disparaging or low worth judgment about oneself. Yet there is mounting evidence that people with low self-esteem are not merely negative about themselves, but rather that they express a general negative attitude toward many things. That is, that they tend to have a tendency toward floxinosa nihilopilification. So there you go. Perhaps a new word for you to learn. (laughs) Our own self-confidence may also influence others around us, either negatively or positively. For example, Franson in the Journal of Experimental Psychology Applied in 2015 aimed to see if the context of, in the context of sports, how the confidence of a team leader might influence the confidence of the rest of the team and their sports performance. They conducted this in 102 basketball players. Groups of four were generated, all with their individual leader. The leaders were asked to express either low or high confidence in their team's potential. The results revealed an effect of team confidence contagion, such that team members had greater team confidence when the leader expressed high, rather than low confidence in the team's success. By showing that they believe in our team, leaders are able to not only make us a psychological reality, but also to transform us into an effective operational unit. So expressing high self-esteem or confidence can also be contagious toward others. High self-esteem has been reported to be one of the strongest predictors of psychological well-being. This has been shown by Rosenberg back in 1965, Campbell in 1981, and Denier in 1984. Schroger in 1995 developed a scale, the Personal Evaluation Inventory Scale, which measures specific self-esteem and self-confidence in different aspects, such as in speaking in public, academic performance, physical appearance, social interactions, athleticism, together with general confidence in mood state subscales. Argyle in 1987 found that friendship and self-confidence were to be some of the greatest predictors of happiness. So if high self-esteem is important for happiness and well-being, how do we know if we lack self-confidence? Well, just as that questionnaire I pointed out, that PEI questionnaire, this can help us to assess if we have high self-esteem or not. Now, unfortunately, I would love to post this questionnaire so that we can all take it, but these questionnaires are copywritten and require paid access. But I'll list some of the questions so that we can, assel- we can assess our own self-esteem and answer these questions for ourselves. These questions are typically answered on a scale of strongly agree down to strongly disagree. Are you a worthwhile individual? Are you good at school or work? Are you reliable and trustworthy? Do you like and accept yourself, even if rejected or disliked by others? Do you overcome your challenges? How did you respond to these questions? This might give us some insight to our own self-confidence. Okay, so now that we understand and appreciate how self-confidence is an important aspect of mental well-being, happiness, and how it can influence others around us, Let's talk about what might cause low self-esteem and how we might be able to improve upon this. For example, lower self-esteem and negative mood has been found in individuals with greater time spent on social media. Lynn in the journal Depression and Anxiety in 2016 reported in a sample population of over 1,700 people that if participants spent more than two hours on their smartphone per day, they were 66% more likely to have symptoms of depression 
versus those who use their smartphone for 30 minutes or less per day. Specifically, 28.6% of people who were deemed as high users of their phone reported symptoms of depression, versus 21.8% in the low users group. Haas in the journal Body Image in 2020 conducted a study to understand how social media use may influence how we compare ourselves to others online and how that makes us feel. The scientists recruited 763 teenagers and young adults. The participants were asked to report their time spent on social media and answered questions about their preoccupation with both general and appearance-related comparisons. The scientists also assessed symptoms of depression, social anxiety, and anxiety about one's physical appearance. The scientists noted that social media use was associated with symptoms of depression, social anxiety, and appearance anxiety, meaning that the more someone used social media, the higher scores they had for how anxious they felt about their appearance, and had higher scores for symptoms of depression and general anxiety. Younger women tended to have higher scores and tended to be influenced more so by social media. However, young men also were influenced by social media in regard to feelings of depression, anxiety, and appearance-related anxiety. You see, it can be difficult for people to view social media without comparing themselves to what they see. But the more we do that, the more we compare ourselves, it seems the less happy we will be. And of course, how social media does not always depict reality, we may be comparing ourselves to something that is not real, to something that is unattainable. So the scientists in the study report that social media may lead to anxiety and low self-esteem because of the constant comparison of ourselves to what we see. So if we feel like this might apply to us, what can we do? Well, for starters, we can choose to stop following accounts that may post content that doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, particularly content that seems unattainable or unrealistic. But we can't always avoid this type of content, so a perhaps more important or more effective step is to learn how to not make social comparisons, meaning we need to learn to take ourselves out of the equation. It is observed that people who input themselves into situations or who make things about themselves often tend to report less happiness and greater anxiety. For example, do we find ourselves making everything about us? Like if someone shares something with us, like if they tell us about a new hobby, an achievement, a new trip, a desire to get into shape, do we automatically think, oh, I wish I could do that, or I could do that? Do we tend to feel jealous or hurt when we make the conversation about ourselves? Instead, Let's make the conversation focus, our thoughts, about that person, not us. When we look at a photo of someone going on a trip, let's be happy for them and not make it about ourselves. If someone talks about their achievement, let's be truly happy for them and not automatically think how that influences us or how we couldn't or could do that. This ability to remove ourselves from the equation, to not compare ourselves certainly can take time to prevent that automatic social comparison response. However, in the long term, it will lead to better mental wellness and better self-esteem. The ability to be happy for others and to not make everything about ourselves. So reducing time on social media, unfollowing content that reduces our self-esteem, and training ourselves to reduce how often we make things about us 
can be helpful strategies to improve our self-esteem and improve our mental wellness in the context of social media use and in the context of everyday life. Now to continue the conversation of how we can improve low self-esteem, let's take a neuroscience perspective. This understanding of the brain can help us create strategies for improvement. That's my whole goal for this entire podcast, for us to understand ourselves better so that we can be happier and healthier. And part of that equation is to understand our brain. So let's get into that. Fruin in the journal Scan in 2013 conducted a really neat study. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, they measured the recruitment of different brain regions in 20 women to understand how self-esteem might be processed in the brain. They wanted to understand how the brain may signal differently in women with low self-esteem versus higher self-esteem. So how did they test this? Well, while the women had their brain region activity being measured, they were shown photos of themselves and of other women. That in itself was a test. Second, they would have the women label the photos with adjectives by saying, I am, blah, blah, blah. She is, blah, blah, blah. This would be done with both positive and negative words. Women were also given questionnaires to assess their self-esteem. So what did the scientists find during these labeling tasks? What was going on in the brain? Well, first off, they identified certain brain regions involved in self-confidence, or more specifically, self-referential processing. These brain regions included the dorsal and ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, and the left temporal parietal cortex. So brain regions that sit at the front of our brain that are involved in information processing and decision making. You might be wondering, okay, why is this important to know which brain regions are involved? Well, it's important because now we have a target. If anything else in our lifestyle influences these same brain regions, then it might influence our confidence because confidence is regulated by the same brain regions. Let me give an example to help explain this. The same brain region that is implicated in drug addiction also happens to be implicated in our body's movement and exercise. Now, because we understand this, exercise has been looked at as a therapy to help with drug addiction and even help with sugar addiction. Exercise can increase the expression of dopamine receptors in that brain region and can help bring the brain back to homeostasis or normal physiological functioning after a history of drug addiction. And I talk about this in past episodes, like in episode 46. So that's an example of how understanding which brain regions are involved in certain things can help us to create strategic therapies. Okay, so now back to the topic of self-confidence. The scientists identified particular brain regions involved in self-referential processing or how the women perceived themselves. What did they find out next? Well, they observed that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex responded during negative self-reflection, particularly in women who regarded themselves more negatively. But dorsal medial prefrontal cortex of the brain responded particularly in women who experienced greater positive affect during positive self-reflection. But not only the women who experienced greater negative affect during their negative self-reflection, but also the women who regarded themselves less positively before positive self-reflection, exhibited an increased right amygdala response, which is really interesting. So now we have identified some brain regions involved in positive self-reflection and negative self-reflection. 
Let me share another study before I jump into how we can use this information to benefit us. Kawamichi in the journal PLOS One in 2013 conducted a similar study using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, and noted that some of the same brain regions, like the medial prefrontal cortex, were important during us evaluating our reputation and how others view us and how others may verbally describe our reputation. So that was the medial prefrontal cortex. Okay, so now I have said, once we identify the brain region, we have a target for self-improvement. Let's take these neuroscience findings and turn them into actionable goals. So I had said that the amygdala was implicated in the women having negative self-reflection and lower self-esteem, and the medial prefrontal cortex was implicated in self-evaluation. So then I'm curious, my neuroscientist mind is pondering, if we are worried about a reputation, if we are perceiving ourselves negatively, if we want to increase our self-esteem or how we feel about ourselves, we could approach it by a affect labeling to change the recruitment of our amygdala and to bring on board the medial prefrontal cortex. In the last episode, in episode 123, I talk about the neuroscience technique of affect labeling. Costa Freda in the journal Brain Research Reviews in 2008 pooled together 385 neuroimaging studies to support the utility of the technique affect labeling. I also described affect labeling and provide references on my social media platform if you want to go take a look at that. But briefly, affect labeling is a technique where we take a deep breath and that's to inhibit the autonomic response of emotional reactivity. Next, we specifically identify the emotion we are feeling. Like, I feel jealous. I feel unconfident. Third, we identify what has made us feel that way. Being specific here is important. This technique works to reduce the recruitment of the amygdala, thus reducing our emotional reactivity, our negative emotion. And this technique helps to bring on board that logical decision-making part of our brain. So remember how I said in the study Fruin in 2013, how it identified that women with low self-esteem had a more responsive right amygdala versus women with higher self-esteem? Well, this might provide a neurological, neurobiological explanation for the higher negative emotional reactivity in women with negative self-reflection and low self-esteem. So this technique I just suggested of affect labeling may help in regulating those negative emotions about oneself. As hundreds of neuroimaging studies show that affect labeling may reduce the recruitment of the amygdala, reduce negative emotions, and bring on board the logical decision-making part of the brain, like the medial prefrontal cortex. So what else recruits the medial prefrontal cortex? How else can we target this brain region that's been implicated in self-reflection and self-esteem? Well, this brain region is very important for many things such as taking in information, processing that information, and subsequently planning and making decisions. But now let's take it one step further and be specific to the context of confidence. Let's target the medial prefrontal cortex by planning and making a decision. So step one was to lay affect label to get those negative emotions under control. Step two, let's make a decision. Decision making brings that medial prefrontal cortex on board. So how about we make a decision to feel better about ourselves? Let's finally make a decision toward self-improvement. Let's decide to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. Just make a decision for yourself. Third, let's plan. Again, planning brings on board that prefrontal cortex. 
Confidence is rooted in the aspect of us attempting to do something and being successful at it. So let's plan something that helps us to gain a new skill. Something we can accomplish. What will make us feel better about ourselves? For example, we can plan a workout routine that we will enjoy, one that will make us happy, like taking a dance class. We can start some art projects and feel satisfied with what we have created. Perhaps we can learn a new language and be happy with our progress. Perhaps going for a run and measuring how fast we can run for a duration or certain distance. It is really important to measure our progress as seeing our ability to achieve our goals is an important aspect to having self-confidence. So this technique of bringing on board our logical part of our brain to one, identify what we are feeling, why we feel that way, then making a decision to be better, to feel better about ourselves, then planning out activities to help solidify that confidence that is attainable and measurable. That is my neuroscience-based strategy to help with low self-esteem or negatively feeling about oneself. If you don't believe me that that could work, Let me provide evidence from other scientists that new activities can enhance self-esteem and positive feelings about oneself. Jelani in the journal Health and Psychology Research in 2019 recruited 60 participants living with type 2 diabetes. The scientist's hypothesis was that planning out an exercise routine and having the participants take part in it would enhance their self-esteem, confidence, sleep, and mood. So half the participants carried on as normal as the control group. The other half planned out an exercise routine, which included working out three times a week and then use of a treadmill in between those days for 12 weeks. So what happened? Those taking part in the exercise program saw a 33% improvement in their self-esteem score, where the control group worsened slightly. Their symptoms of insomnia improved drastically as well. Their insomnia score was 6.3 at the beginning of the study, And after 12 weeks of this exercise program, their insomnia score reduced to 1.8, which is pretty substantial. How about another study to support my strategy? Lee Grand in the Journal of Family Violence last year recruited women who suffered from domestic violence. Unfortunately, women with domestic violence are prone to low self-esteem, negative mood, and low self-efficacy. So a particularly important group to help with raising self-esteem and self-confidence. In this study, one-third of the women underwent counseling, one-third underwent counseling and a physical exercise program, and the other third received no treatment as the control. What did the scientists find? Women who planned out an exercise program and received counseling improved the most in regard to how attractive they found themselves, and how their global self-esteem improved over time. Now, self-confidence is an important aspect that teachers and early educators focus upon too. We want to instill a certain level of self-confidence in young people so that they may achieve more, feel motivated and confident in their capabilities, and to improve positive mood. So how might teachers do this? Well, by providing tasks to students that are achievable. For example, Romani in 2011 studied 200 school children, and they noted a significant association between self-esteem, achievable goals throughout their day, and how well they performed at school. Essentially, the scientists concluded that by planning out achievable goals for the students, that this appeared to enhance their self-esteem and to enhance their academic performance. How about another study? 
Hine in the Journal of Sports Sciences in 2006 found similar findings in a cohort of high school students. But in addition, they noted that autonomous goals were important, meaning a goal we set for ourselves, not a goal for a group. So if our ability to achieve our goal also depends on someone else, that may not influence our self-esteem as significantly. A dependent goal may influence our confidence in our team, but not necessarily our own individual self-confidence. So can we learn from these two studies? Of course we can. Based on the last study finding, it may be important that we formulate a goal that is within our hands, that we can do it on our own. For example, I can go running on my own and my goal to run one minute faster in two weeks is dependent on me and me alone. Giving ourselves measurable and attainable goals is commonly said, and that's for a reason, because it is essential in our ability to have confidence in ourself, the fact that they are attainable and measurable. So think about what you are interested in. Plan out some activities with measurable outcomes, and importantly, document your progress. So that, for example, that could include painting or sketching different scenes or portraits. You can observe your progress over time and have visual endpoints with your artwork. You can take a dance class and film yourself to see how you progress over time. You can learn a new language and attempt to have a conversation in that language with someone to see how well you do. But you can record those conversations so that you can compare how you started out and how you're now performing as you continue to learn. This way you can see your progress and that can enhance self-confidence even more. Back in episode 42, I also share the neuroscience and some practical neuroscience-based tips on how to break old habits and how to instill new habits. And this one might be of interest to you too. So that was episode 42. But as with anything, too much of something can be negative, right? For example, overconfidence and arrogance are also something to consider. This is when there is a large discrepancy in our thinking how likely we are to be successful and how successful we actually can be or or are. When there is a discrepancy between confidence and competence. So being realistic is important here. The reason why is because overconfidence may result in bad decisions that could impact others around us. It might also over the long term hurt our self-confidence and self-esteem as the failures add up. For example, can you imagine if a surgeon was overconfident in their ability to perform a surgery? What if a pilot was overconfident in their ability to land an aircraft? What if an electrician was overconfident in their ability to wire a house? I hope you can see from these examples that overconfidence can be very harmful. As individuals may not prepare fully for the task if they are overconfident and thus would lack competence. So, what can we do to improve this or safeguard against overconfidence? Well, Kleitman in the journal Metacognition and Learning in 2019 goes into this topic. The scientists studied 180 grad students and observed that two people might have the same quantifiable level of confidence, but the two people could very much differ in their actual competence to complete the task successfully. So, why might people differ so much? Well, they found that the individuals with the overconfidence tended to also score higher for arrogance and dogmatism. Dogmatism means that we have a tendency to lay down a set of principles and are unmoving and steadfast in that belief. That even if new evidence is brought to us, we are not open to hearing it. 
In the opposite, someone who is open to new information, willing to look at other perspectives and aim for an understanding, they tend to be less arrogant and less likely to be overconfident. So if we feel we or others might tend toward too much confidence, one way to bring that back to homeostasis or a, health, or a healthier level of confidence is to stay open-minded to other input, to new information, and to other perspectives. That before performing the task at hand, stopping to think of the task and logically evaluating your capabilities and listening to others if they provide input. We don't necessarily need to put into action what others suggest, but being open to criticism and new information is important to avoid arrogance and to avoid overconfidence. Everything in balance. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, episode 124, The Neuroscience of Self-Confidence. Self-confidence is very important as it is strongly linked to our mental well-being, our happiness, our ability to achieve tasks, and it can also impact others around us. We might be able to enhance our self-confidence and self-esteem in the short term by using the technique of affect labeling, by making a decision such as to feel good about ourselves and deciding to plan out activities that give us achievable, measurable goals. This can include exercise, arts and crafts, baking, learning a language, writing, you name it. This combination of techniques is targeting brain regions that we know are involved in self-confidence, such as the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. But just remember to record your progress as you plan out these activities so that you can see yourself achieving your attainable goals. This is important. Now, how else might we also be able to enhance our self-esteem? We can also choose to reduce the amount of time we compare ourselves to others. This is particularly important if we spend a great deal of time on social media, as social media creates an environment of social comparison. To avoid overconfidence, it is important that we stay open-minded and open to taking in new information from different perspectives. I hope that this episode was interesting and useful for all of you. I know I found it super interesting. I just love doing this podcast. I always choose a topic that I find fascinating, and I do this podcast for the love of it. I really don't make money on this podcast. In fact, I actually lose money making the podcast but I continue to do it because I choose topics that I love to learn about. And I hope that I can help make any of you healthier and happier, even just one of you listening. And that makes me ecstatic. And I want to bring all of you on this learning journey with me. So I hope that you enjoyed it. Please make sure to follow me on social media where I share some tidbits from the episode and some of the references that I cite in each episode as well. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, you can do so via Patreon and Venmo. The information on my social media and how to buy me a coffee is in the description box to the show. I hope that you all have a wonderful week, and I look forward to meeting you back here for another episode in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.